0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill Briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Um, Today, we are going to be talking about McDonald versus Chicago, a case that was argued before the Supreme Court yesterday, and I guess we'll uh, hear about the fallout from that and uh, when we can expect an opinion on that. We have three great speakers with us today to discuss this issue, which is uh, an issue that's been for a long time very near and dear to my heart. In fact, I... uh, Wrote my first term paper in 10th grade on the issue of guns and gun control and whether it works, and you won't be surprised that I concluded that it does not. Um, So our first speaker today is Ilya Shapiro. He's a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's also an adjunct professor at the George Washington University Law School and has leadership positions in a number of other organizations. Before joining Cato, he was a special assistant and advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues, and he practiced international, political, commercial, and antitrust litigation at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb before that. He holds degrees from Princeton University, the London London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School, and is a member of the Bars of New York, the District of Columbia, and the U.S. Supreme Court. Mostly, most directly, um, excuse me. Most directly relevant to today's discussion, Ilya has been on two amicus briefs supporting McDonald. The first was a joint brief with Ilya and Bob Levy from the Cato Institute, and Chip Meller, Clark Neely, and Robert McNamara from the Institute for Justice. The second was in November 2009, and was likewise a joint brief, this time with Reed Hopper and Tim Sandifer from the Pacific Legal Foundation. Mr. Shapiro.
1: So basically what Kurt's saying is that uh, I find a way to collaborate with people far smarter than I on, uh, on these briefs, uh, so I don't have to do as much work. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming here. Uh, this case is the follow-up, I guess you could say, to District of Columbia versus Heller, uh, the case that, uh, in which two years ago uh, that was litigated uh, by Clark Neely and, uh, and Alan Gura and, and Bob Levy, Uh, where the court decided that the the Second Amendment actually does guarantee an individual right to keep and bear arms. However, uh, because the District of Columbia is a a federal enclave and uh, the Second Amendment, like all of the uh, amendments of the Bill of Rights, apply directly only to the federal government, uh, the question remained open as to whether uh, gun bans and other types of regulations uh, around the country were Most people live in the actual states, uh, whether they would be affected and whether people would have that individual right. And so almost immediately after Heller, uh, Alan Gura filed McDonald versus Chicago, which is the case that was argued yesterday. Uh, That case challenges Chicago's uh, absolute handgun ban and certain registration requirements for long guns, a very similar type of uh, regulatory system, uh, near complete if not total uh, prohibition uh, that existed in the District of Columbia. The issue here is from a a legal perspective, you can't just say, oh, okay, we'll just decide that the Second Amendment applies to the states. You can't do that uh, because, as I said, none of the Bill of Rights applied to the states until after the Civil War. Uh, The Civil War and the Reconstruction Era uh, uh, affected um, a fundamental change in the relationship between the federal and state governments and the federal and state governments, respectively, with the individual. Um, the 14th Amendment, uh, in particular, has three important sections the Equal Protection Clause, all laws have to apply equally to all persons, the uh, Due Process Clause, you can't be deprived of your life, liberty, or property without the due process of law, and the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Um, no state shall uh, deny uh, uh, a citizen. Uh, shall, let me just read this so I don't butcher it. Ironically, I've now written. A dozen articles on this and, um, you know. Um, right. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. You would think that that has a, that's a robust protection of our constitutional rights. No state shall deny the privileges or immunities. Um, you know, you would think, well, privileges or immunities, I'm not sure what that that is. Well, you look at, you know, mid-19th century dictionaries or how people talked about uh, that term, those terms uh, in speeches and so forth, to try to figure out what it was. Uh, and it basically is a synonym for natural rights, certain uh, civic and political rights uh, as well. Uh, and you figure out what, what those are. It's uh, not, that, not that difficult, really. Um, and again, the important part is to look at 1868, the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, not you know, when the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791 or during the Revolution or, or what have you. Um, Unfortunately, five years after the uh, Fourteenth Amendment was ratified, uh, the court decided uh, a series of cases involving the uh, monopoly power, monopoly economic power of slaughterhouses in New Orleans. It was a challenge brought by both consumers and potential competitors to these slaughterhouses. Uh, using the Privileges or Immunities Clause among uh, other constitutional and statutory provisions. And the Supreme Court decided effectively that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was uh, a null set. You know, it protected very few things that that federal citizenship granted you. For example, uh, no state could accost you on the high seas. Uh, You know, I'm not particularly worried about Arkansas accosting me on the high seas, but anyway, you're protected. Uh, the, the right to visit federal sub-treasuries, I'm not even sure what that is, but you have that right. And, and, and that's about it. Um, it, it the, the reactionary court at the time uh, did not want to reconcile itself to this fundamental change that Reconstruction uh, wrought after the Civil War. And so they effectively read out the Privileges or Immunities Clause uh, out of the Constitution uh, to this day. Uh, it, it's just not litigated un- until McDonald. Um, so instead, when certain rights started to be what's called incorporated against the states, starting with the First Amendment, continuing with almost the entire Bill of Rights, the couple of minor insec- uh, exceptions like the right to indictment by grand jury, um, they st- the, the court started doing this in the, starting in the 20s uh, under a doctrine called substantive due process. Now that sounds like a misnomer. What is substantive procedure? Scalia likes to make these. Justice Scalia likes to make these jokes. Well, what about the procedural substance process clause or something? Um, there is actually some substance to due process. You have to have something because, for example, uh, you know you could be uh, tried in a kangaroo court uh, and your rights aren't really protected. But there is due process. You're duly processed by this by this court. So there actually is some substantive value to that. And Tim is a, a more expert on this than I am. If you if you're more interested in that. Uh, But because privileges or immunities was foreclosed in 1873, protections, substantive protections for free speech, freedom of religion, um, the right to be uh, free from unreasonable search and seizure, Fourth Amendment on on the way down, started to be protected uh, via the Due Process Clause, uh, which is really a strange way of doing things. When you have this clear other section of the 14th Amendment, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, that was meant to protect all of these uh, substantive rights. Anyhow, fast forward to McDonald. Uh, and now uh, the, the gun owners are saying that uh, their right to keep and bear arms under the Second Amendment, or just in general, uh, the, the, the natural right as codified in the Second Amendment, that's kind of a, a, a technicality which may or may not be important, uh, but that is being infringed by Chicago. And in this litigation, uh, Allen. Uh, raised both the due process and privileges or immunities arguments all the way through. Um, at the Seventh Circuit, that's the intermediate court directly below the Supreme Court, um, the NRA had a case that was consolidated with Allen's, uh, with, the, with the McDonald petitioner uh, petitioners. Um, but uh, at the Supreme Court level, the court granted uh, review only to the uh, McDonald petition, which specifically requested or, or presented the question of whether... Uh, the right to keep and bear arms was to be incorporated against the states by due process or by privileges or immunities. Uh, yesterday's argument, the court uh, wasn't that interested, it seemed, in privileges or immunities. Right off the bat, Chief Justice Roberts said that the petitioner had a very high burden in trying to overturn an 140-year-old precedent, this slaughterhouse cases and uh, Justice Scalia, who had been quoted in the Washington Post on Monday as referring to substantive due process as being babble and uh, privileges or immunities as being flotsam. But from apparently from yesterday's argument, babble is worth more than flotsam, and so he is likely to side with substantive due process. And really nobody was, was that favorable uh, to privileges or immunities. There seemed to be uh, at least five votes for indeed extending uh, the right to keep and bear arms for incorporating the Second Amendment against the states. So, if what you came here to uh, to hear was uh, uh, you know whether indeed uh, back in your home constituencies you'll be able to uh, have a gun or or whatnot, I think you're I think you're safe. I think it's a it's a it was a good day for uh, the right to keep and bear arms. Um, it was not a good day, I would say, for the privileges or immunities clause, and uh, that's significant. Uh, not just because legal scholars want to get the Constitution right and it's purer text or or more faithful to the Constitution to use privileges or immunities if the result is going to be exactly the same under uh, a due process, but because if you you care about um, liberty or if you care about strict construction of the Constitution or originalism, um, privileges or immunities is important. Um, Because we've had this warping of substantive due process, and that's been a vehicle, an empty vessel uh, with which judges and justices have been able to fill with whatever policy prescriptions, whatever kinds of rights they think are important. Because the tests that are applied under the substantive due process clause, the the different uh, weights on on given rights, some are fundamental, some are not fundamental. Well, How do you judge whether something is fundamental or not? There's this whole colloquy yesterday uh, about whether something is uh, inherent in uh, the system of ordered liberty uh, that our nation belongs to. I mean, it, it's kind of these metaphysical how many angels can dance on the head of a pin type of discussion. Uh, whereas the Privileges or Immunities Clause is tied directly into the text, history, and structure uh, of the Constitution. There's evidence exactly of what that's supposed to cover and, and not to cover. So at the very least, it would be no worse than subsequent due process. And at best, it would allow... Uh, for the protection of uh, freedom of contract, the right to earn honest living, things that Clark will probably talk about, um, and will hold judges' feet to the fire so they can't uh, invent rights and and then protect them as well. Um, So I guess I will leave it there. My prediction from yesterday, by the way, is that there will be at least five votes to strike the Chicago gun ban. Uh, Thomas, Justice Thomas, will probably be the only one uh, voting for privileges or immunities. There will be at least four votes on substantive due process. You can't tell with the liberals as easily. Breyer was very hostile. Uh, the others might, may well go along with the substantive due process incorporation, yet allow the Chicago gun ban to survive under a uh, multi-factor balancing test or some sort of uh, weird mel- mental gymnastics. Um, but there you have it. The, the gun rights are secure, uh, liberty less so.
0: Thank you, Ilya. Next up, we have Clark Neely. He joined the Institute for Justice as a senior attorney in 2000. He litigates economic liberty, property rights, school choice, First Amendment, and other constitutional cases in both federal and state courts. He served as counsel in a successful challenge to Nevada's limousine licensing practices which effectively prevented small business persons from operating their own limousine services in the Las Vegas area. (laughs) He was the lead attorney in the institute's successful defense of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy against a lawsuit by the Michigan Education Association challenging the center's right to quote the MEA's president in fundraising literature, and he is currently leading IJ's opposition to a nationwide effort to cartelize the interior design industry through unnecessary and unreasonable occupational licensing. Clark is also the leader of the Institute's school choice team, and most recently, and relevant to this discussion, in his private capacity, Clark served as co-counsel for the plaintiffs in District of Columbia versus Heller, the historic case in which the Supreme Court announced for the first time that the Supreme Court protects an individual right to keep guns at home for self-defense. Clark received his undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Texas, where he was Chief Articles Editor of the Texas Law
2: Review. Mr. Neely. Well, the good news first. If um, you, you love gun rights and you think they should apply against state and local governments, uh, yesterday's argument in McDonald was pretty encouraging. Looks like that's almost certainly going to happen. Um, if you love the Constitution, if you love the institution of the Supreme Court, if you loved re- if you love reasoned debate, uh, yesterday's arguments were very disappointing. Um, in fact, they were a disgrace. Uh, the all nine justices. Well, I have to say. Justice Thomas rarely speaks and he didn't yesterday so of the 8 justices who spoke not one of them showed any real interest in the relevant history or text of the constitution and i found that amazing particularly in contrast to the heller decision which is the second amendment case that came down 2 years ago even the dissenting justices seemed to recognize that the history of the Second Amendment was relevant to the court's decision. In other words, their interpretation of what the Second Amendment means. And so you had Justice Scalia writing a decision for five justices in the majority that was very heavy on history and originalism. And then you had Justice Stevens writing for four justices in the principal dissent that was also very heavy on history and originalism. Now, they disagreed over relevant aspects of that history, but they at least seemed to agree that the history itself was important. And that is an incredibly stark contrast to what happened in the, the McDonald arguments yesterday where, as I said, all eight justices who asked questions of the different advocates showed no inter- literally no interest in the relevant constitutional text and history, which is the 14th Amendment ratified in 1868 and specifically – the only provision in the 14th Amendment that plausibly protects the right at issue in this case, the right to keep and bear arms, and as Ilya said, that is the privileges or immunities clause. When you basically sit down to try to figure out what rights are protected by any part of the Constitution, to the extent the text is at all unclear, uh, and it's just a necessity, by the way, that some parts of Constitutions have to speak in terms that are somewhat unclear. Constitution is not a statute. It doesn't spell out in specific detail everything that you can and cannot do. That would be impossible. So constitutions tend to speak in terms of principles. It's not like a drop-down bullet list of every right in the world that you have. Instead, they speak in in broader principles. But sometimes... I think the French Constitution tried to do that at one point. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you'd have to figure out which one among dozens, right? But... um, So what you get, essentially, is a situation where you actually have to use judgment. You have to bring your understanding of the relevant historical context to whatever provision of the Constitution is at issue. And it turns out with the 14th Amendment, that is not nearly as hard as the justices have made it. The whole point of the 14th Amendment was to end Southern tyranny in the wake of the Civil War. There is no doubt about that. So if you were advocating on behalf of equality for newly freed black people, you could be silenced and censored in the states, and you were. In fact, before the Civil War, in many states, advocacy of abolition was, you could be whipped for that, and in some cases, executed. And you had no federal constitutional right to assert against the state that passed that law. In the wake of the Civil War, blacks and white unionists were being systematically disarmed so they could be terrorized and in some cases lynched and it was happening and the congress that proposed the fourteenth amendment had abundant evidence of all of that and it made them very angry and that's why we have a fourteenth amendment and the part of the fourteenth amendment that was designed to put an end to that conduct was undoubtedly the privileges or immunities Mm -hmm. clause And it was extraordinary to sit in the Supreme Court yesterday and listen to an hour-long argument in which eight justices showed not the slightest interest in any of that history or in the relevant text of the 14th Amendment. And I hope there are some people in this room that have the ability, some way or another, call those justices to account. I revere the Constitution, and I revere the institution of the Supreme Court, but I was very unimpressed by what happened yesterday because it, it basically it was such a jarring disconnect from what we saw in Heller. I thought the, the engagement between the justices in the Heller decision was amazing. Even though they disagreed over the relevant history, they at least joined issue on the relevant history. And there was none of that uh, at yesterday's McDonald argument. Instead, it was this long, meandering debate about whether certain rights are fundamental, and if so, how fundamental, and are there degrees of how fundamental a right can be. Maybe Madison had a little chart on which he had actually a hierarchy of fundamentalness. It was insane, because there's no need to do any of that. What you do is you look at the relevant history of the provision that you're talking about, and that relevant history was written in blood throughout the South in the wake of the Civil War, and the Supreme Court didn't pay it the slightest regard. I thought that was amazing. And when I say amazing, I mean something else. Um, So what I'm supposed to talk about is the, the sort of the future of gun control laws and perhaps the protection of other rights. And I'm at a loss, to be honest with you, because the Supreme Court, again, showed no interest in the relevant history or text of the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, and specifically the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Had they shown some interest in the relevant text, I would say, for example, that gun control... Uh, laws, uh, as they're sometimes called, or gun takeaway laws, um, should be held to a very high standard of constitutional review given their history. People were being stripped of their arms in the wake of the Civil War. They were being taken away, often under pretexts of the kind that we see urged by D.C. and Chicago these days in defense of modern gun control laws, um, in order to make them more vulnerable to reprisals and lynching. And so I think there would be a very high degree of judicial scrutiny, of gun control laws, if the court were to interpret the 14th Amendment according to the relevant historical context. Other rights that would come with that are ones that were specifically uh, called out for protection during the relevant time period. So, for example, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 specifically called out the rights to contract to testify in court, to give evidence, uh, things of this nature, those would all be protected. And I think one of the most important rights that would be protected that went completely unmentioned during yesterday's argument um, is basically what we call economic liberty, the ability to go out and earn a living so that you can be economically self-sufficient. Because after all, what is the opposite of slavery? The 14th Amendment was designed to put an end to de facto slavery. The 13th Amendment put an end to legal slavery, But during the Reconstruction South, states were trying to keep newly freed black people in a state of constructive servitude. One of the ways they did that was by taking away their ability to earn a living and to be meaningful participants in the economic life uh, of the South. And one way to do that, for example, was in some states it was actually illegal to be off of your employer's property without a note from your employer. Why would you do that? Well, because it actually turns out to be really hard to go find a better job when your employer won't give you permission to look for one. That would be the kind of thing that should be a very bright road sign for the modern Supreme Court to determine what is the scope of the 14th Amendment. If you have (laughs) doubts about what rights the 14th Amendment protects, why not go and look at what rights were being violated at the time that it was enacted and what seems to have prompted and motivated it, and then that at least can help guide you in terms of what rights would be protected. Another big one, by the way, um, would be property rights. So for those of you who know about the Kelo decision, which came down a few years ago, in which the Supreme Court basically deleted the public use clause from the Fifth Amendment, Um, that was a case that my organization, the Institute for Justice, litigated, um, basically giving to the hands of the government unbounded powers of eminent domain. Um, None of you own property in America, by the way, anymore. You might think you do. You don't. You just hold it until somebody with more political power comes along and comes up with a reason for taking it. Um, the right to own property would be protected if the Supreme Court took a serious look at the 14th Amendment because the inability to own property and to contract and do those sorts of things uh, was another example of rights uh, that were being interfered with and, and taken away, um, not only from newly freed blacks, by the way, but by their um, uh, for their white supporters as well during the Reconstruction era. Instead, what we've got is basically a Supreme Court that appears determined to just continue another 100 years um, of looking at any new right that's proposed and just saying... Gee, I don't know. How fundamental do you think it is? Well, I think it's pretty fundamental. Well, I don't think it is. And having what amounts to a a kind of a French salon in which they sit around and discuss how fundamental they think the right is in complete disregard for the text and relevant history of the 14th Amendment. I don't get that. As you can tell, I'm I'm discouraged by it. Uh, But hopefully what will happen is people will see just how unprincipled. If the decision comes out looking like the arguments felt yesterday (laughs) morning, hopefully people will realize what an incredibly unprincipled approach the court is taking To our rights, the most important thing really that we hold in some ways as citizens, and demand that either the court itself or if it won't do it, new justices on the court take a more principled approach to history that is respectful of the relevant history and is respectful of the text that was enacted by the people of this country and doesn't just stem from the personal feelings of the justices as they spent most of their time discussing yesterday. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Clark. And our final speaker today, after which we'll have some Q&A and we'll open it up. Um, our final speaker is Timothy Sandifer. He's a principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. As the lead attorney in the Economic Liberty Project, he works to protect businesses against abusive government regulation. He also works to prevent the abuse of eminent domain, having litigated important eminent, eminent domain cases in California, Missouri, and elsewhere, and having filed briefs in many significant eminent domain cases, including Kilo v. New London. A prolific writer, his book Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America was published by the Cato Institute in 2006, and he has published scholarly articles on subjects ranging from eminent domain and economic liberty to copyright, evolution and creationism, and the legal issues of slavery and the Civil War. Sandifer is a graduate of Chapman University School of Law and Hillsdale College. Mr. Sandifer.
3: Well, um, thank you very much. I wanted to talk about how this case kind of goes beyond the, the right to possess firearms and, um, and talk about how this, is, this case really involves a conflict between the values of uh, individual liberty and democracy, uh, which was set in place mainly by the progressive movement that uh, – cur- that, that you know, of course, created the New Deal and the modern administrative state. Of course, if you look at your constitution, and I know you all have your constitutions with you I brought my Pacific Legal Foundation constitution instead of my Cato constitution. Um, <laughs> it, the first sentence of the Constitution says unambiguously that liberty is a blessing, right? The word democracy is nowhere to be found in the Constitution. The Constitution, in fact, exists for the sole purpose of limiting democracy. It places all sorts of restrictions on democracy. A law has to pass through one house, has to pass through another house, has to be signed by the president, the courts can strike it down, all these sorts of restrictions in order to protect liberty. Right? Uh, Unfortunately, the progressive movement that began in roughly the 1880s and uh, and reached its height in 1934 in the Supreme Court decision of Nebbia versus New York replaced that value with democracy so that today most intellectuals regard liberty as a function of democracy. Your rights are not rights. they are privileges or permissions that are given to you by the government for the government's own purposes. Now, of course, the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment was written from the complete opposite perspective, right? The Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment was written by the early Republican Party, which consisted of classical liberal opponents of slavery who wanted to make sure that there was, from now on, no question that the Constitution preserves liberty and to to write their constitutional interpretation into the fundamental law of the land. And among the rights that were protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause was, of course, the right to possess firearms for personal protection, But another one of the rights that was protected by that clause was the right to earn a living. The right to engage in trade, to support yourself and your family without unreasonable government interference. This right had been guaranteed at common law as long ago as 1602. I've actually found a case from the 14th century on this, striking down royal monopolies in England as a violation of the common law right to earn an honest living without unreasonable government interference. But in 1602, the English Supreme Court, the uh, English Court of King's Bench, issued a decision called Darcy versus Allen that found that, uh, that royal monopolies that gave a trade to one business only and made it illegal to compete with that business, were a violation of the Magna Carta. And this was widely recognized and believed by the founding fathers of America, who, by the way, their, the le- leading legal textbook of that time was written by one of the great champions of economic liberty, Sir Edward Cook. So by the time the slaughterhouses' cases came around in the 1860s, 1870s, this idea that you had a right to earn a living, and government had no right to create monopolies and make it illegal to compete against them, was part of the the prevailing intellectual atmosphere. In 1868, the state of Louisiana passed a law saying if you want to slaughter cattle, you have to do it at one privately owned slaughterhouse. It was illegal to run a competing slaughterhouse. So you'd have to imagine, like, if the state of California said that if you want to get your car repaired, it has to be repaired at AMCO, right? It would put all of the competing... garages out of business. So all of the competing butchers sued hundreds of cases. They were consolidated together, went up to the Supreme Court in the slaughterhouse cases, the the butchers arguing that their right to earn a living without monopoly interference by the government was one of the privileges or immunities of citizenship. And in a five to four decision, the Supreme Court disagreed. And as Ilya said, limited the amount of the number of rights uh, to a ridiculously narrow degree, completely ignoring, completely ignoring the intellectual triumph that accompanied Union victory in the Civil War. That is, to create federal protection against abuses by state governments. That was the whole purpose of the 14th Amendment. Unfortunately, because of the slaughterhouse cases, the court had to shift its protections to the due process clause, as Ilya said. Now, substantive due process is something that a lot of conservatives ridicule and attack, but let me at least explain what it actually means. Substantive due process is a bad term because it leaves out the most important part of the phrase, that is, of law, right? The Constitution says you can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property, that due process of law. Now, let's suppose Congress were to pass a law that said, I don't know, uh, Scientology is the official religion of the United States and you are required to attend the Scientology Church, right? And you decide you don't want to. And the policeman shows up and arrests you for not, showing, not going to church as you were required to. And you say, no, no, wait a minute. No, no, you can't take me to jail because Congress has no power to make such a law. Right? Whatever Congress said when it said that Scientology was the official church, you can call it a pronouncement, maybe, a resolution or something, but you can't call it a law because the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law on this subject. Right? So whatever Congress did, it's not a law. And for you to be deprived of liberty... Pursuant to this invalid legislative enactment is for you to be deprived of liberty without due process of law. Now you take another step back and you say, there are certain things that law simply may never do to you. For example, it was widely believed in the 19th century, it was widely believed until the New Deal, at least it was widely believed until Kilo, that government had no power to take one person's property away and give it to another simply because it liked the other person better. Now, of course, that's primarily what government does. But in those days, it was held to be invalid because it's not a law. It's arbitrary. It's an arbitrary action of government. Arbitrariness is the opposite of law. That's where substantive due process comes from, okay? So the courts started protecting the right to earn a living under this theory, which is a valid theory. It doesn't really cover all the bases like privileges or immunities does, but it works. And the courts started protecting that right. That's where you get the so-called infamous Lochner case in cases of that era. Then, of course, during the New Deal, the court backed away from that and basically said that government can do whatever it wants when it comes to economic freedom and private property rights and face no governmental protection. I mean, uh, uh, and the government can do what it wants and face no uh, opposition from the courts. Now, let me give you an example of the kind of cases that, that we have seen as a result of, of the currently existing judicial paradigm. I, re- I represented a guy named Alan Merrifield, He was in business as a pest control worker in California, putting up spikes on buildings to keep pigeons from landing on them. All right? You've you've seen these around D.C. probably. Uh, He didn't use pesticides to keep pests away from buildings. He doesn't believe in pesticides. He doesn't think they're effective, and he thinks they're dangerous. So he just uses structural devices like spikes and screens and things like that. In California, if you want to do that, you have to get a Branch two Structural Pest Control Operator's License. And to get such a license requires two years of training learning how to handle pesticides, and then you have to take a 200-question multiple-choice examination testing your knowledge of pesticide use. My client did not use pesticides. And the law gets even better because it only applies to pigeons. If you put the exact same spikes on the exact same building to keep seagulls off of it, you don't need any license at all. So we went to court. Actually, before we went to court, we went to deposition. This is, I was telling somebody about this on the way over. This is great. So we're in deposition, right? The state has one expert witness, basically the guy who wrote this law. And I said to him, this law requires a license to put spikes on a building to keep pigeons away. Is that right? He said, yes, it is. I said, but no license to put the same spikes in the same building to keep seagulls or any other kind of bird away. He said, that's right. I said, would you call this irrational? He said, yes, I would. The government lawyer says, can we take a break? <laughs> I bet you want to, right? He comes back from the break. He says, I'd like to clarify what I said about irrational. (laughs) He says, what I meant was, from the public's perspective, it's irrational. But you see, what happened was, they were going to get rid of this licensing law. And those of us who already had licenses, we didn't want to compete fairly. So we went down to the legislature, and we lobbied them. And we said, why don't you divide up the market and give us the most common pests? And then they can deal with all those other pests. And I'm going, yes, tell me more, right? (laughs) So we'd go to court, and we lose. We lose. The state admitted under oath that the law was irrational, and we still lost the case because the law is so dramatically tilted against businesses, against economic freedom, and against private property rights and private property owners. Fortunately, we won an appeal in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, The the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said that the government may not use occupational licensing laws simply to create these kinds of monopolies. It's very gratifying. That's the only, only, so far as I know, the second court that has ever said this, the Tenth Circuit, of course, in a case that Clark worked on for the Institute of Ju- for, uh, for Justice, they've, they've done these, these great coffin cases. One of them went the right way, one of them went the wrong way. In the Tenth Circuit, they said, uh, yeah, you can use occupational licensing laws for pure protectionism. It doesn't have any connection to the general public's safety. That's perfectly fine. Okay. This is the kind of nonsense that, would, that we were, are hoping would not go on if the court enforced the 14th Amendment as it was written. Right, So we, we brought suit in, in my, uh, the Pigeon case, in Mr. Merrifield's case, arguing the Privileges or Immunities Clause, and of course that part of our case was dismissed because of the Slaughterhouse cases. Now what happened yesterday, I'll say I'm a little, just a teensy bit more optimistic than Clark. Um, it was shameful what happened yesterday, particularly Justice Scalia's questions. Justice Scalia said during the oral argument that he would be more willing to use substantive due process in which... He disagrees, with which he disagrees. right? He has has spent his career attacking the theory of substantive due process. He says he would be willing to use that rather than to use the privileges or immunities clause. Now, so far as I'm concerned, he has to turn in his originalist card, right? Because there is no dispute, no matter what your position on Slaughterhouse, there is no dispute that the Slaughterhouse cases was not what the original intent of the 14th Amendment was. You may think that maybe we should ignore that intent, maybe we're better off at the Slaughterhouse, fine, you can have that opinion, but it is not what the authors of that amendment meant. Nevertheless, when called upon to employ his originalism, Justice Scalia will instead use a substantive due process theory. But, here's my optimistic take. Since 1873, there has been no decision on the Privileges or Immunities Clause. The Court has simply never done anything with it. So there's really not many questions to ask, right? I mean, you can't say to the lawyer, well, what about this case? What about that case? What about the, you know? So they've got the history in front of them. I saw them putting out the briefs on the bench before the argument. These things are like, there's like two feet tall full of, full of these amicus briefs. I mean, they got all the, uh, the history in front of them. So maybe there's just not much to talk about there. They're going to go back in their offices and read this history. Keep our fingers crossed. But again, that's, that's an attempt to be optimistic. How can, how can people like, in your position help? The number one thing that people in, in public interest law, Clark and myself, what we can use from you is when a constituent calls you with a legal problem, like the Pigeon case or something like that, tell them to call us. There's really nothing you guys can do. There's nothing the legislature can normally do in a case like that. But you can refer cases to us when you have a constituent who has a problem with an occupation, a licensing law or some kind of business restriction that is helping somebody well, the, out the for no good. the state legislature
1: could do it. Congress
3: couldn't. That's yeah 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 that yeah, 's right, yeah no the state legislatures can in fact, in Oregon uh, last year, uh, we brought suit against a licensing law in Oregon where if you want to run a moving company, you have to get permission from all the existing moving companies, and it 's not forthcoming, imagine that right, um, so we filed a lawsuit and um, and while that case was pending, the Oregon legislature repealed that law, so there are things that state legislatures can do, um, but for the most part, what you can do is you can send constituents our way if they have legal problems. The other thing that really needs to be done, and I know this is kind of far-fetched, but this needs to be done. We need a new Civil Rights Act in this country. We need a Civil Rights Act in this country that makes explicit reference, again, like the 1866 Civil Rights Act did, to the right to run a business and the right to own private property. These are fundamental civil rights, fundamental human rights, that are ignored and violated by state and local governments. And the people who hurt the most are the small-scale people Immigrants, inner city residents who don't have the political power that they need to defend themselves. That's why they rely on the Constitution, right? They can't afford to go down to the city council every day and say, please don't take my house away and give it to Costco today. Please don't take away my business and give it to some, other, some conglomerate, right? They don't have the time to do that. They have lives to lead. So they wrote a Constitution so they wouldn't have to do it. And when the courts refuse to enforce the Constitution, they're left at the mercy of the political process, the very same political process that has violated their rights. So those are two ideas that that perhaps might, uh, might go forward and a little bit of an optimistic take on yesterday. Thank you.